Hello everyone, this is Maria Lipman in our Pona's Eurasia podcast featuring a series of discussions about Russia and Eurasia, about the region's politics and about other Russian Eurasia related topics. The vote for a new Duma ended with a confident victory for the pro-Kremlin party United Russia, which has preserved the constitutional majority in the national legislature. Although the United Russia pre-election rating was under 30%, it gained about 50% of the vote and has won an overwhelming majority of single-mandate races. The top electoral officials announced that this election cycle had fewer irregularities than ever. The critics, in the meantime, cite numerous and often egregious manipulations and plain fraud. In Moscow, the electronic vote upended the vote for the candidates recommended by Alexei Navalny's smart voting tactic. Several of them who won the ballot box vote in single-mandate districts found themselves way behind their competitors after the electronic vote count was announced. Statistician Sergei Shpilkin, who has analyzed Russian elections for many years, has no doubt that the electronic voting results in Moscow were falsified. Electronic voting must die, he said. It is an absolute evil, a black box that no one can control. The September vote demonstrated the government's secure dominance over the society and its control over the vote count, but it also showed that public discontent is real and broad. One indication is that the Communist Party has significantly improved its showing. It is also noteworthy that even though the government mobilized the loyal electorate, got rid of unwelcome candidates and intimidated potential protesters, it still had to resort to unsavory methods in order to achieve the desired result. What is the cost of the Kremlin's current victory? And what do the September election results portend for the future? My guests today are Nikolai Petrov, Senior Visiting Research Fellow at Chetton House and the head of the Center for Political Geographic Studies in Moscow, and Tanya Lokot, Associate Professor in Digital Media and Society at Dublin City University. Nikolai, my first question is to you. We spoke with you uh, in this podcast shortly before the elections. Did the election results uh, live up to your expectations? And what is your cost-benefit analysis? What is the cost of these results for the Kremlin? Uh, first of all, I would say that there wasn't anything sensational in results, except some local things like, say, almost all the experts were waiting for some problems in Khabarovsky Krai, where the highly unpopular governor should be elected. It uh, didn't happen. And everybody was waiting for results of the smart voting, and there still are, well, uh, scandals going on in connection to the electronic voting in Moscow. But in order to understand whether the Kremlin is satisfied with the results or not, one should answer the question what the Kremlin's goals uh, used to be. And in my view, efforts we've seen from the side of the Kremlin are far exceeding the necessary ones to reach the goal of keeping constitutional majority and thus control over the state Duma. My explanation is that it's not about Duma elections, it's more about transit in general. And we've seen not only huge money invested by the Kremlin and the whole wave of repressions, but we've seen many more preparations for 2024 going on. 
including the electronic voting, which is clearly prepared or under preparation for forthcoming presidential elections, including Mishustin's government and its programs oriented to create the vision of, if not economic prosperity, then increasing life level, including centers for managing regions, which have been used widely in these elections. But generally speaking, well, they should work in full volume only in a couple years from now. So from this point, we should say that efforts undertaken by the Kremlin deserve results, but not results obtained in these elections, but results planned to be obtained in next elections. Okay, still we saw an improved result for the Communist Party, higher than um, in the previous legislative election in 2016. Should the Kremlin be worried about competition with the Communist Party? And do you expect maybe a less amenable Duma because of the uh, Communist representation? Yes, I do. And control over Duma depends not only from the composition of the Duma, but uh, from external circumstances, from changing political environment. What is important, I think, is to understand that the Kremlin needs to revise, to reconstruct the whole party system. This is about the Communist Party, led by 77 years old Gennady Zyuganov. This is about Liberal Democratic Party, led by 75 years old Zhirinovsky. Almost all political parties in Russia are led by leaders who are staying in this capacity for longer than Putin as the president of the country. And it's understandable that no more the Kremlin can postpone this not very easy and not very pleasant work of uh, restoring of constructing, deconstructing the party system. And the results of these elections do clearly show that for the first time in 20 years, the opposition force uh, represented this time by the Communist Party got almost the same results. If to have in mind all, well, attempts, uh, successful attempts of fraud, the Communist Party got results very similar to results of the United Russia. It works well. I mean, fraud works well in order to get majority of the state Duma, but it doesn't change the minds of Russians. And the situation is understandable. The Communist Party is now clearly the strongest political force. And the fact that its leadership should be replaced creates additional troubles for the Kremlin because of the ongoing competition between two different wings within the Communist Party, more, well, conservative, more old, more loyal to the Kremlin, represented by Zyuganov, and more radical, more eager to take additional risks and to play as a real opposition, not as imitation of the opposition. So talking about a reconstruction, possible reconstruction of the party system, what about the United Russia itself? Based on the experience of this September election, it looks to be somewhat of a burden. It takes more and more effort from the Kremlin, economic efforts, repressive means and otherwise, to make sure that United Russia gained the desired results. So do you expect the Kremlin to reform the United Russia in any way? 
once again, this is a kind of cost-benefit analysis. And I don't think the Kremlin is eager to make the United Russia a real political party. The Kremlin doesn't need the United Russia as a party. It needs United Russia just as an air balloon to be filled with hot air to carry whoever the Kremlin wants anytime. And it works this way. So the Kremlin can add people's front candidates, leaders of Russia candidates like this time. And I think it feels pretty comfortable with the fact that the United Russia does not act as political party and does not, it, it is not considered to be the political party. Its leader, its former leader, Dmitry Medvedev, is not only unpopular, he is unnoticeable. We do not understand exactly who is making, if somebody is making decisions within the United Russia. The Kremlin enjoys having full control over administrative system, which once in five or six years can be called the United Russia and can serve the role of this engine, the role of this air balloon in elections. And that's all. Tanya, let's talk about constraints on internet freedom. Part of those constraints, it seems, had to do with the preparation for the September elections. And I would like you to, to talk specifically about the Kremlin moves regarding smart voting and its pressure on Google and Apple just very recently. But also, it seems that constraints on internet freedom have grown much harder lately and even unrelated to this election. So I would ask you to talk about these more immediate steps as well as about the most significant elements of the current clampdown on the internet. Yeah, I think it's uh, absolutely true that the election seems to sort of intensified the crackdown that has been going on for some time. And we can definitely say that it's escalated both around the election, but I think also a few months before. So I'll get to the event, election events in just a second. But, you know, just over the past few months, we've seen um, a crackdown on independent media and opposition related or nonprofit organizations in Russia that the Russian state deems in some way dangerous or threatening where, you know, they've been branded either foreign agents or extremist organizations. And that has meant, among other things, that their websites and, and other online resources have, have been sort of taken out of commission. Um, many of them have been blocked. Many of them decided to sort of close them down voluntarily in order to protect their staff. But this all has kind of been also going alongside everything else that's been happening where you know, protest-related content has been blocked. Any kind of anything related to the um, activities of Alexei Navalny and his allies has been under constant pressure. And so now we're, we're what we've seen during specifically in the run-up to the election and even as the election days began was this wall of pressure on all available sources, platforms to block any resources connected to Navalny and specifically to uh, Navalny team's smart voting initiative, which in itself seems like, you know, it would be a, a good election initiative because it's essentially a voter information resource that tells voters what the likely opposition candidates are in their district that they would need to vote for if they wanted to basically disrupt United Russia majority. So in this case, right, obviously in the eyes of the Kremlin and in the eyes of United Russia, this, this is a t terrible idea because it undermines their already shaky position in the elections. 
But certainly what's been really unprecedented in this case in Russia is that Roskomnadzor, the Russian uh, censorship agency or the Russian internet regulator, they went directly to Google and Apple and they asked them to not only block particular pieces of content or web pages, but they asked them to take down the smart voting app, which was available previously in both Apple Store and Google's Play Store. So it was accessible to Russian smartphone users because that was sort of the last resort for Navalny's allies because once the websites were blocked, the app was one of the few things that remained accessible to voters. And so the surprising thing that I think caught a lot of people unawares was the fact that Apple and Google actually complied with this request and that they blocked the app for users in Russia. So it, it remains available to, to users in other countries, but in Russia, it's, it's no longer available in the, in the app stores. Reports tell us that um, this happened because there was considerable pressure put on the local staff of both Apple and Google inside Russia. The AP has reported, for instance, that staff were threatened with criminal prosecution. Apple and Google representatives were also called in before the Federation Council on the eve of the elections um, and were basically accused of election interference. Uh, the U.S. ambassador was also called in and um, he was again accused of um, the West masterminding election interference. So this, this is really unprecedented pressure. And so while I think people are surprised that they caved, I think it's very clear that, you know, they weighed their benefits and losses and decided that it simply wasn't worth it in this case. But I think the problem that this poses is that it sets a precedent and that, you know, the, the Russian state now knows that there are pressure points that it can press on if it wants to do this again. And so this, this kind of polit politicized pressure where, you know, platforms would typically remove something if it violated their terms of service. But here it's very clear that this in no way violates their terms of service. Um, and it's not, the app in itself is not in any way extremist, but it's connected to an, an organization that was labeled extremist. And therefore Apple and Google, you know, they then write to Navalny's organization. They say, we have to remove this because it violates the Russian law. And so, yeah, that's what the discussion has really been about, is that where is this going next, right? What is going to happen both to the opposition online presence, but also to the way these companies operate in Russia? And, and I think that's what everybody is watching for now once the elections are over. Right. Alexei Navalny personally shamed Google and Apple for so sheepishly agreeing to implement the Kremlin's demands. But of course, this makes no difference. And they indeed caved. So would you please go over quickly some of the other significant elements of the current clampdown on the internet? If we go back maybe a few months or which are the elements that seem most important to you? I think, yeah, I would agree that, you know, many people have <laughs> expressed their disappointment, but very strangely, neither Apple nor Google have released any public statements on the matter. So I think it's very clear that they know that they did something wrong in this case, and, and maybe they don't necessarily want to make a statement. I do think, though, that these platforms and also other platforms, they increasingly find themselves in this environment where, you know, yes, they are online businesses that want to do business in Russia and they have a market in Russia, maybe not their biggest market in the world. But what they're finding is that anyone doing business in Russia on the internet has to really grapple with these demands that are all based on Russia's shift towards a highly securitized, 
context in which the internet is presented as a space of national security and you know a strategic space that is important for national security for cybersecurity and i think that really changes the conversation so anything that happens on the russian internet is potentially viewed as as a threat right and so the conversation about free expression or privacy gets completely subsumed by this idea of national sovereignty security the national interest and this uh, i think has found really its expression in some of the recent legislative changes as well so for one thing um, we had the long developed national sovereign internet legislation which is a whole host of measures that is aimed at the state taking control over not just content or filtering or censorship tools but also over national internet infrastructure and i think this has really been one of the biggest shifts where russia has tried to basically monopolize and nationalize its online space by introducing centralized controls over content and traffic by trying to push uh, russian made applications and services as much as it can by requiring that all internet connected devices come with a pre-installed package of Russian-made applications. Um, but we've also seen specifically the Russian state targeting social media companies and internet companies. One of the things that they've implemented that's just now being rolled out is a so-called social media registry. So, you know, the Russian state likes to have registries for <laughs> every kind of actor. Now they have one for large social media companies which I think includes a fair number of both Russian and foreign um, social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, including also Kontakte and Adnaklasniki, but not Telegram for some reason, even though you could argue that it's a messenger, but it is definitely also a social network. And so these companies uh, now bear the burden of blocking content that the Russian state deems illegal, and they fa face even higher fines than before. Whereas before the blocking was done by ISPs and then now later by Roskomnadzor, now it puts the burden of the blocking and removal on, onto social media companies, which obviously does not bode well for content that the state somehow finds offending. Um, the other law that, um, they, that has been already signed but hasn't yet necessarily come into power is this law that is really closely modeled on Turkey's legislation, which requires large internet companies to open full-fledged legal entities in Russia, to have legal representatives which can be taken to court, which can sort of uh, bear legal liability for what the company is doing in Russia. Um, and this very much is a practice that has been adopted by many other authoritarian or illiberal states, including Vietnam, Turkey, as I said, and now Russia, which basically creates a situation in which the law holds the companies hostage and doesn't really allow them to deliver on their human rights commitments or any sort of universal global freedom values that you know, they might have previously subscribed to. So I think you know, this, this is all putting the Russian internet on track for a not very free environment and perhaps an environment that is even more closed off from the rest of, of the global online space. But I think that that is what the Russian government is aiming for. Right. One Russian observer was quoted as saying just recently that September 2021 marks the end of the Internet freedom in Russia. 
So do you think that Russian independent internet experts are capable of resisting the current onslaught in any way? I mean, I think it's, you know, we're just going to see a different Russian internet, which will have some freedom to do some things. But if things keep going as they are, I think those that those people who are currently working on all of these different technical solutions for circumventing various censorship, various bans, um, you know, and producing or making these technologies available, they can do a lot and they're very resourceful and very industrious, but I don't think they can enable circumvention or access to, to the global internet on a national scale. And obviously a lot of the effort required to get around the blocks or, or the filtering or the bans is required from the users. And you know, while Russia has a very high internet penetration, um, most people will likely be quite uh, satisfied with having access to the sort of usual everyday resources that they use. And maybe not all of them will care if they lose access to certain platforms that aren't Russian or aren't hosted in Russia or aren't friendly to the Russian state. So I think there's definitely fuel um, in, you know, there for, for doing this work. And there are a lot of people, some of whom are based in Russia, some of whom are based outside of Russia, who are capable of trying to counteract what the Russian state is doing. But I don't know that there are enough of them to counteract it on, on such a massive scale. And of course, it also depends on how far the Russian state is prepared to go, which looks to be pretty far. Right. Nikolai, compared to 2011, the manipulations and fraud and all kinds of new constraints appear even more egregious, and yet almost no protest followed. And there will be no federal election until 2024. So can the Kremlin relax a bit and concentrate on other issues rather than continue to clamp down on the society? And if so, what are those issues? You have spoken and written recently about imminent reshuffling of the elites, not just the political parties that you mentioned, but beyond that. I would say that in my view, Duma elections meant the beginning of the new stage of political transformation. And the previous one used to be much more peaceful and easier one. And uh, the one which is starting now will be much more complicated for the Kremlin because at the previous stage, the paper design of the new political system has been finalized. But now it's needed to bring this paper design to life, which means to redistribute powers between different institutions, those which have been established recently or those which have been reshaped recently and will mean also large-scale reshuffle. And the fact that the Kremlin did postpone many personnel replacements for a long while, in my view, means only that it will be easier now to adjust all these newly emerged institutions simultaneously with replacing bosses of these institutions. And regime itself is aging. And in my view, what we'll see in near future will be Putin the president after 2024 and a kind of seven-headed eagle represented not by any kind of Putin's successor or potential successor, but by several his deputies, several his envoys, 
which should manage at the level of their particular institution, being it the government led by the prime minister or the presidential staff or the security council or the state council or COSAC's commission on international development or VEB as mega institution for development. And this means that the Kremlin now will face much more serious challenges not to speak about the needed and urgent reconstruction of the party system of the political bloc than what we've seen in past. And it will not go on smoothly, I think, due to three major challenges. One is connected with building up of this new system. As I've told, there will be tension between different institutions when redistributing powers, there will be tension when replacing certain key elite figures. Then the problem of functioning comes. And in my view, the design we've seen is not very effective. It's not capable to manage the country of Russia's size and complexity. It's over-centralized and it doesn't have any single center where different sub-centers can agree on what to do next. And finally, there are some understandable challenges experts are discussing for pretty long time. It's aging, not only of the regime itself, but of its leader. It's shrinking in demographic and economic sense. Russian economy is stagnating. Russian demography is in a very bad shape, which creates understandable problems not that urgent, but they do accumulate. And so in a while we'll see accumulated effects of lacking strategic approach, lacking long-term investments, and it will lead uh, to an understandable, uh, well, crisis of uh, the regime. And who knows uh, how exactly it will appear after this crisis. You mentioned you've been talking about the challenges of government management. But what are the challenges of what Russia will have to deal with, maybe social or economic or global? Can you think of anything in particular that Russia will have to face, cannot avoid, and that will probably be uh, aggravated by the challenges of government management? I would say that, in my view, Green Deal can serve a good example. And on 26, we'll have German elections. And these elections can mean very serious changes for the general environment with regard to Russian economy, if only Green Party will become part of the ruling coalition. And uh, Russia is not preparing for green energy. It's much more opportunistic in a sense that, okay, Russian leadership being not capable to look at 10 years in future. Well, they are strongly focused on how exactly the country can benefit now. So now they do invest huge money and efforts in order to construct port facilities and infrastructure to sell as much coal as possible. So the world is planning to go green. The Russian economy at the same time is moving in opposite direction in order to get certain benefits until the world will become green. And Sooner or later, in several years or in a decade from, from now, when Europe will be able to establish the kind of new green 
economy and new requirements for green energy, it will appear that uh, Russia will no more be capable to sell mineral resources in a way it is selling now, no more capable to sell hydrocarbons, and it will be too late to do something. And that's the huge and the biggest, I think, problem, because the lack of horizon the lack of loan investments means that the country being strongly focused on how to fix the most urgent today's problems is not preparing for longer future. And the new system of its management, I think, is designed in a way which makes it possible to leave, but not to, well, I would say, which uh, does not make it possible to leave and to develop. It's possible to survive only and to keep status quo. Okay. Tanya, let us return to the um, sovereign internet. The perennial question that has been asked over the years about whether Russia may adopt the Chinese internet policy, this question has been invariably dismissed by your colleagues. So has it become more relevant lately? Has the uh, probability, the likelihood, of uh, something more similar to the Chinese internet policy become higher? I think it certainly has. And I think for me, it's clear that the Russian state and you know their agencies responsible for developing and regulating the internet would certainly like it to move in that direction. I think the, the sort of argument that's been usually put forward in response to the China question has been that the Russian internet has a very different history from its Chinese counterpart because it was for a long time fairly free um, and fairly unregulated, unlike what's been happening in China. But I think at least in terms of how the state views the future of the Russian internet, it's certainly clear that they would like to control as much as possible every sphere of network life from what happens to digital business or you know, financial interactions and, and financial exchanges online, to what happens in the media space, to what happens in the way that private citizens use the internet and what happens to their data. So I think it's, you know, it is certainly more likely that the, the Russian internet will look perhaps more like the Chinese internet. I do think though that in terms of having something to offer once other companies leave and you know if if Russia continues in the same way it has they will leave if if the cost becomes too much for them to bear i think it's the the russian offerings are still fairly thin because you know yes russia has yandex and russia russia has mailru um, and maybe a few other services but you know, if you, if you suddenly were to, to switch off all the foreign platforms available in russia you wouldn't be left with much especially given that, you know, even in terms of media and entertainment, there, there are certainly some offerings, but there's not very many. So I think it's still the question of whether the Russian user population will accept a bare bones sovereign Russian internet if everything else is taken out, or if they're so used to having this embarrassment of riches that's been offered by the global web that they won't settle for anything less. And I think, you know, that is something that Really, only only time will tell what what will happen. Yes, indeed. So, Nikolai, from what Tanya just said, Russia may adopt something that will be not so dissimilar from the Chinese internet policy, but it cannot adopt the Chinese dynamism. 
neither is it, and I think it is continuing, continues to uh, turn away from the West. So what does it pretend for the Russian economic development? Closing down and reducing the internet to something of a Chinese model and turning away from the West. Well, I think when speaking about prospects for Russia's economic development, we should not necessarily have in mind that it's needed all the time to demonstrate essential growth. If speaking about China and China neighbors, let's look at Japan, where economy is not growing for, say, 30 years. Yes, it's different from Russian. It's at the different level, but the problem I see is connected with the fact that Russian regime is not that much focused now on demonstrating economic growth, especially if to have in mind that even if Russian economy will grow much faster, that will not make Russia superpower in the sense of huge economic share. That's why I think separating from the world, from the West, by means of uh, sovereign internet as well as uh, Tanya has described, I think certain role in constructing Russian future as the regime sees it. And the problem, in my view, is that the longer the system moves in this direction, the less capable it becomes to turn back. And the tactics, if being used for many years, becomes a strategy. And from one side, we are not self-sufficient. I mean, Russia is a country, and it's absolutely dependent from the West looking for new commodities to sell and everything else. But from other side, the government is not focused on the development uh, anymore. And here we do see a kind of path dependence, but uh, of a different kind. It's not about serfdom. It's not about golden court yoke or, or anything else from deep history. It's about the fact that when moving 20, for 20 years in direction opposite to the West, uh, the country gets a kind of inertia, and even when stopping to move in this direction, it will be not capable to come back in a short while. (laughs) One more conversation that ends in a very grim outlook, but I'm afraid there is nothing different we can offer. Thank you both very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.